Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. How are you doing? I'm Ray Harkins. This is 100 Words or Less, the podcast. Thank you for downloading this and putting it into your ears. I've been noticing recently the uh, the downloads have been uh, climbing. A lot of you, you uh, are, are consuming this thing, and I really appreciate that. This month is special for a lot of different reasons. One, it's March. Happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> no, that's not why it's special. What is special is the fact that we are doing a themed month. I always like it when I can do these sort of, you know, these these package months where we have, you know, one consistent theme, whether it's like, uh, I think I did one on record labels in the past. I did one kind of where I collected a bunch of people from San Diego and spoke to them. This one is all about Seattle. And before you start coming in on me where it's like, oh, you missed all these people from Seattle. You should have spoken to this person, should have spoken to this person. Two things I'll, I'll have you do. One, dive back in the archives because there's a lot of people who I've spoken to from Seattle, like John Pettibone, as an example. Go dive back in the archives because you will find a great interview I did with him. Um, so just lay off for one. Just, you know, don't, don't yell at me. Um, and two, and some of the obvious people were just like, Hey, why don't you talk with, uh, you know, with, uh, with Ben Gibbard from death cat for cutie. Um, I just didn't have the time to try and track him down. Okay. So, so just be happy with what you got, which frankly is awesome. And today's guest is Dan Gallucci, who is the guitar player. Uh, and he's just done a bunch of great stuff with so many bands. Area 51, Death Wish Kids, Murder City Devils, Modest Mouse. He also played, uh, wait, who else did he play with? Cold War Kids. Yeah, yeah, he played some, uh, played played with the, that band, recorded their records uh, for, I want to say like at least two of their full lengths he did, but he is also a, a very uh, important figure within the uh, podcast realm as well because he did this great, great show with uh, his current uh, significant other and uh, some other people called The Dream which is a great podcast you should check out if you haven't uh, heard of it. You can find it anywhere good podcasts are downloaded. But um, yeah, hold on. Una memento, por favor. A few things that are on the top of my head. First of all, morenoiserecords.com. It is a great website. It's actually got uh, emailed to me by the proprietor. He wants to get the word out. And I checked it out. And it's like, cool, man. It's, uh, you know, primarily focuses on like grind, power violence, that sort of stuff. So you should check out the website, morenoiserecords.com, okay? And then the second thing that is on the uh, top of my head is the fact that uh, we had a great DIY space, uh, unfortunately, I have to shutter, called uh, Rift Mountain. This is in Fullerton, California, here in uh, the Orange County area. And um, yeah, it's always sad when these things happen. And uh, Alex, who is the uh, the person pushing it forward, did, uh, some great, great work there. And, uh, I just always, you know, my, my heart goes out because a lot of people pour 
you know, their, their time, their efforts, blood, sweat, and tears into it. And then, you know, for, for a myriad of different reasons, uh, it, it, it can't do shows anymore. So pour one out. I'm, I'm pouring a, uh, a metaphysical 40 out cause I don't drink forties, but then also you, you can't really see me doing that. So, but anyways, Riff Mountain, Alex, thank you very much for doing all the, all that you did to uh, contribute to this uh, beautiful scene here in Southern California. Uh, and also rockabilia.com use the code PC Jabberjaw that will get you 10% off your order. It is a, it's basically the only place that you should buy merch. Okay. They have half a million items. It's all officially licensed, high quality, fast shipping, great customer service. There is nothing that you can't get at that merch store. It is so, so cool. So shout out to Frankie. Thank you for your continual support of this show. Appreciate that. Use that code buy all your band merch for the year, give it to your friends throughout the year. And you're, you're, you're just going to be everybody's favorite. Okay. Just go ahead and do that. And, uh, yeah, like I said, Dan is the guest. It was a great chat. We actually recorded this at, uh, his studio. So, uh, you know, it may sound a little bit uh, different than the, uh, the podcast that you are maybe used to hearing on this, uh, this specific channel, so to speak, like this is a television channel. <laughs> <laughs> but uh Dan was so welcoming and I appreciated it so much. So here's that discussion. And I'll talk to you after the episode is over. Well, I think Murder City Devils actually played with Bane um, specifically. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I think we did a tour with them, and I can't remember what other band. But there was a point at which um, we started veering and could feel ourselves veering into this weird scene that we didn't want anything to do with. No. And it was like like Nashville Pussy and like bands like that where we're like, totally. whoa, whoa, whoa. Right, whoa. right, right. Like, this like is Zeke and all us. that. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is not us. This is not what we want to be associated. This is bad news all around. Yeah, like, this is not, not our feel politics, like a... <laughs> not our anything. Yeah. And um, so we were like, okay, only uh, all ages shows and um, we're going back to playing with hardcore bands and that's it. Right. So... And thankfully, hardcore bands were still willing to play with us. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, well, uh, that that actually segues perfectly into the uh, the uh, the initial the initial question, which it's it's a bigger question, but I'm sure it's one that you've you've uh, reflected on in some uh, weird way. Where like I I mean, living in Southern California in Orange County, like I saw, I honestly I was trying to think as I was driving up here, I was like I probably saw you guys no shortage of maybe like seventeen, eighteen times. Like I've seen I, like from <laughs> yeah. every spot, from like I mentioned yeah. over email PCH Club, right? Where right, right. Uh, you know you guys definitely singed my arm hairs. Yeah, with, sorry about that. No, it's okay. Yeah. I I just wasn't uh, 
I wasn't expecting that at that time. Yeah. Those shows were aggressive at the PCH. <laughs> there were, and, and especially too, where it's like, I mean, there was so many hazards about that place in general. Oh, I can't even imagine. Not I even, just right. closed, yeah, I just shut a blind eye to that one. Yeah. <laughs> but the, but then I, you know, I, what, still a, you know, straight edge hardcore kid by definition and yeah. uh, application. But the, um, there was something that, uh, you know, very few bands, in my opinion, were able to achieve and it was that sort of like unifying factor like honestly they're uh, a band like a veil yeah and honestly murder city devils really kind of fit that mold in my opinion as well where it was like okay at an avail show you'd see obviously like hardcore kids punk kids like you know yeah. dirty homeless kids like yeah. crust punks whatever and murder city devils always kind of hit that mark to me as well where it was like you would attract so many different people from so many different walks of life and like you know yeah. it, it uh i I don't know if you guys like recognize that as you were obviously like mentioning that you would play with hardcore bands and rock bands and all this other stuff, but there was always this weird undercurrent of like, oh yeah, like everybody can show up on Mercy Devil Show and like have fun. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think when we noticed it is at that time mm-hmm. because when we started out, um, like like John Pettibone, he was always a fan of any band that we had done. So like we were in bands called death, Wish kids in area 51. 51. Right. And, um, he, I remember in like high school, John would barely talk to me because he, you know, he was in the coolest band in, totally. in even if you weren't straight edge, which I, I wasn't, but I always hung around straight edge kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a friend that moved to Tucson in, in junior high. So, um, I ended up going down there and I would hang out with all these, straight edge kids with sure. with him in in Tucson. So I'd come back and and I knew a bunch of straight edge kids because of this weird connection and whatever. Mm-hmm. And um I always thought, you know, John was the one of the coolest kids in the scene or whatever. And um I wasn't long. I mean, it, like a year or two after high school, he started listening to the bands that we were in and for some reason he liked them and because he liked them it felt kind of like it was okay for everyone to like them. And like all of Undertow liked us. Right. So like we, and we'd be in different little side projects together and stuff, mm-hmm. even though we were like the furthest thing from straight edge, which <laughs> was the start of this, this connection to, to hardcore, not just from growing up and like listening to DC hardcore and knowing straight edge kids and that kind of stuff, but actually um, hanging out with them and, being like friends and to being in bands together and stuff like that. So um, we always felt like as a band, we were really lucky because when we did get to that point where we found ourselves on tours with these bands that we just shared nothing in common with, especially politically, I think that's where it hit us the hardest because sure. you go back to someone's house after a show and you're, you're going to sleep and people are up having a few beers or whatever. And all of a sudden people say things that are, just you know we are we are like radical progressives like yeah. <laughs> we are we came from riot girl we came from like totally you know a world where you know it just you can't like the idea of being homophobic or racist or 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 like not feminist like any of those things like is like repulsive totally and then all of a sudden you're in a room with these people and you're like oh i thought your whole shtick was like an act but it's not right and first of all gross act thanks but that's weird (sighs) Mm -hmm. and and second of all 
fuck you. Yeah. We have to get the fuck out of here. We put ourselves in this position. And when we were, we finally realized that we, and we were just like, can't do it anymore. Um, I think we just felt really lucky that the hardcore scene uh, was still there and embraced us and, and didn't like ostracize us for going too far in that direction or something yeah yeah no that's a really good point because I, I think that i mean you know even the the, the split seven inch you did with you know botch which is like yeah you know many people point to that as like this this really uh this this interesting uh inflection point where you had these two bands who you know ostensibly sound nothing like each other but well not ostensibly they you don't sound anything <laughs> like each other yeah and but the unifying factor of like oh yeah we're from the same scene like we've yeah. been cut from the same cloth and i think that's a like I said, I think that that is the unifying factor of the fact that around the country, you know, it wasn't just in Seattle that, like you said, the hardcore scene embraced you. Yeah. You were able to pick that up, you know, kind of across the country from what I noticed and the fact that it's like, oh, yeah, like this is who you're 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 the base of kids who are coming to these shows yeah. as you're getting more and more popular and you are attracting people who, you know, go to just a couple concerts a year or right, whatever. Right, right. But you had that 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 bedrock that was there. Well, and it, it was nice too because around that that same time um, we met uh, at the drive-in, and mm-hmm. that started a relationship with and and though in the obviously those two bands didn't sound anything alike no. either. But I we were we always wanted to we didn't care to play with bands that sounded like us. For the most part, we didn't like bands that sounded like us. <laughs> right, so, right. Um, we you know, and also we. We always tried to kind of sound like this garagey, whatever you want to call it, punk band. Um, but we were so not, we weren't very good at it. So we ended up kind of creating our own <laughs> right. thing, kind of. Um, and uh, anyways, once we met at the drive-in and just started touring with them more and more, um, it, they were really similar too, where hardcore kids would go see them. And um all kinds of different people would go see them. And yeah. so the tours, as odd as they were, kind of made total sense, you know? Totally. It's the, the yeah. kinship of like, well, we don't fit in anywhere. We fit in a little bit everywhere. Yeah. As opposed to like, oh, yeah, we are just this this linear band that you're going to, you know, finger point and wear hooded sweatshirts and stage dive. It's like, no, yeah. we'll attract some of those kids. But then some of those kids, yeah, but that's. Well, that's the thing, too. And I mean, the reason why we became friends with Out the Driving was the first show that we played with them. I remember the night before we played a show in um, uh, Albuquerque, mm-hmm. and there was a fight at the show, and there was this kid who had gotten one of the kids that had gotten in this fight, and I remember thinking like, "What is that? what's happening here?" <laughs> Anyways, um, the next day I went out to get like a coffee or something to eat or whatever right before the van's taking off. And um, I see this kid walking down the street, and he's like, are you going to El Paso next? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you got to check out Out the Drive-In, they're the best band in the world, or whatever. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> and we were playing with them. Okay. So, um, so yeah. And then we went back, like, at that night with with them to, like, the, one of their houses. And, like, it was just immediately, like, oh, oh yeah. Like, we're, we are really from the same types mm-hmm. of scenes and we are interested in the same thing so it was it was really nice and that actually the touring with them i think kind of prolonged the life of the band because we had like close friends instead of touring with with people who we didn't really know yeah you know? totally you just like tour mates like you, yeah. you felt you felt like there was this this true kinship of like actual humans yeah yeah yeah, yeah which yeah. is awesome um kind of reflecting on you know or putting the focus on you as a person you were were you born and raised in seattle 
No. Okay. Because, um, like, no. you, yeah, Tucson kind of played a part in there, like you were saying. Yeah. Well, so I was um, I was actually born and raised until junior high in Portland, in northeast okay. Portland. Sure. And um, I have, like, a big – or it's smaller now, but big Italian family that, that lives there. And um, we moved to the suburbs of Seattle, my family, um, when I was in junior high. Okay. And then I left uh, – my I gra- – I, Almost dropped out of high school after my junior year, but my mom convinced me to go to an alternative school. And what it allowed me to do is I was living on my own and paying my own rent. And I was working 35 hours a week. Wow. And getting all my OCAD credit, which is what I was really missing for mm-hmm. some reason. I didn't t- take typing or something. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, which I would go back for when I was 30. Um, but – uh, I was able to graduate early, so I left when I was 17, and Spencer from Mercy Devils and I um, moved into an apartment together as soon as we could. He had already dropped out of school. so Got it, got it. Yeah. The uh, So it's uh, – I mean from my uh, casual observation of you as a person obviously on stage and, and you know just consuming interviews and stuff like that, you're, uh, you know, you're a pretty soft-spoken guy. Like you're not um, – you don't strike me as the sort of person who is just like, uh, you know, really, uh, I guess, confrontational. A lot of people would assume like Murder City Devils is just like, no. oh, yeah, dude, like, you know, a bunch of like, you know, raging maniacs. And it's like, well, I'm sh- some nights, sure. But uh, no. you know, none of us are raging maniacs <laughs> right. at okay. all. Right. Yeah. And so that, that's you've always struck me as, as that. But like the uh, I guess the turmoil that you're experiencing, like in school, was it basically just like, yo, I don't fit in anywhere here and I just need to get out? Yes. OK. Yeah. I mean, basically what happened is I. Uh, I had some problems at home, mm-hmm. you know, and um, not to sound too ominous. That no. It's pretty similar problems that I think a lot of kids have, but mine were not super fun. And yeah. um, my parents ended up splitting up, which which for me at the time was actually probably a good thing. Yeah. How old were you when um, you split up? 15. Oh, okay. And so I was able to kind of gain a little independence that I didn't have before. And so I think one of the things was I, I didn't fit in. I didn't fit. And this was at a time where there was like three punk kids at my high school and right. three at, you know, the one down the street and three over here. And that made the group of kids, you mm-hmm. know, it wasn't like a big group of kids at a high school. I'm sure you're totally, yeah, yeah, you pull, right. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. especially too, where it's just like, if you are of a certain age, it's like, the that you know the, the pre-internet era where yeah. it's like you were you're you're just kind of hanging out with people who sort of tangentially liked aggressive music totally like, you know, yeah like you're super into metallica like okay like i can get down with that totally right. yeah and then you meet like i remember i met this guy Derek lineman who's still a good friend of mine mm-hmm. and he was in a band and um screen printed his own shirts and um was super into dc hardcore which is what i was starting to get super into uh-huh. so uh, you know obviously fugazi and stuff like that was those bands were big but like all the weird like rain like the sound of trains kind of stuff yeah. and then also um you Ske- know earlier Ske-Bald faith seven Floyd and, yeah that kind of exactly <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, totally that seven is just unbelievable state of the union all of that oh, stuff yeah. so like when we actually when I actually met him, that's where I started to see an identity kind of forming. Like, the, oh, this is the, this is the kind of punk that makes sense to me. Right. I like this, the Mohawk punk stuff and whatever. Like that's that doesn't. It didn't speak to you. It doesn't. Speak like to musically, me. it could be cool, but I, I don't identify with it. Yeah, but like I'll totally put a stocking cap on and like a gas station jacket yeah. and like some dickies that I tapered and whatever and listen to like DC hardcore and then and then. 
at the same time we were going down to Olympia because Seattle was like not a great place for, for punk music. Um, so, but Olympia had this thriving, insane, amazing, I can't believe I was there at the time yeah. scene, you know? And so we had all these opportunities to see like bands like, um, Mulcatillo fairies that like queer core bands and totally. like feminist bands and like bands that were, we could actually, the politics aligned with what we were looking for, you mm-hmm. know? So, um, I apologize. I have a cold. Um, no, you're fine. <laughs> I'm getting over a cold. I'm not contagious. Um, but, uh, anyways, yeah, that's when I started to kind of feel like an identity forming. And then it was just like, get me out of this suburb. Like yeah. I grew up half my life in a, in a small, but inside the city, like mm-hmm. in the middle of the city. Um, but, and that made sense to me. And then we went there and I was like, no, this sucks. So this I just had to get to Seattle as quick as possible. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so you're, uh, you're, do you have brothers and sisters? I have one sister. Okay. And so you are uh, the older, the older of the two? No, she's four and a half years older. Or sorry, three and a half years older. Okay. And so um, I guess you're, I mean, like you were mentioning your exposure to, you know, DC hardcore and sort of independent yeah. music was happening through your friend. Prior to that was like, how did, how did you start to like grasp onto that stuff? Um, so for me, there was like this this really easy to map out um, path where uh-huh. um, first it was through a tape club, one of the Columbia tape clubs. So oh, yeah. I Columbia got, House. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I got uh, Ramon's Mania. Oh, and, okay. And then when I got that, I started to like read the liner notes because I was always like a nerdy liner note kid even when I was really young. Mm-hmm. And, um, in fact, I have a seven-year-old and I'm always like, why doesn't you want to read the liner right. notes? You know? <laughs> yeah, you're like, dude, that's so what weird. I was <laughs> But um, anyway, so I that was like the first thing. And then I got and then I remember I went to the mall and um, there's a record store called Cellophane Square. And I got um, their first Ramones record. And then um, I was into hip hop in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And there was this kid who was like the only black kid at my school. Super nice. Um, I don't remember his last name. His name was John. And he had a connect in Seattle because we couldn't get good hip-hop records on the east side, which is the suburbs of Seattle. Sure. Um, so his, uh, like, cousin, I think, lived in Seattle, and there was a record store that actually had hip-hop records. So we would give him – I would give him money. He'd give it to his cousin, and then I'd get back, like, a Bismarck key tape or something. <laughs> hey, that's amazing. <laughs> so – and anyway, so I was listening to that, and that got me into reggae. And so, um, you know, started with, like, kind of Bob Marley, Peter Tosh stuff. Mm-hmm. But I remember I had a Bob Marley sticker and uh, – um, and a Ramon sticker on my notebook in uh, ninth grade. And this girl who was like an older, cool, like straight edge punk girl. Right. Um, she was dating the singer of Galleon's Lap, which oh, was like, whoa. That's a big that's deal. A big deal. That's Absolutely. A big deal. So um, anyway, she was like, look, if you like, she's kind of like, oh, God. Um, like, if you like the Ramones and Bob Marley, then you should listen to Bad Brains. And, um, and that was it. That's how I got into it. Bad Brains was my entrance to, to the whole Your world. Your gateway to everything. Yeah. yeah and yeah. it still is my favorite, you know. Yeah. I Well, one of, you know. Of but, course. Right, but right. Like, yeah. Like the. That was your jumping off point. It's like, yeah, everyone. And I always, I always love those stories just because it's usually some really, really inconsequential thing for the other person. 
Like, right. it's just, you would pow- never remember that. Totally. I mean, yeah. yeah. You could, you, yeah, you could sit her down right now and be like, do you remember when you did that to me? No, not at all. Like, yeah. I was just passing in the hall or whatever. Right. Exactly. But then the, the, on the receiving end, you're just like, oh yeah, my life was irrevocably changed because of this one record. Yes, absolutely. Like I got the roar sessions or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. Yeah. And I got the, at the movies, um, the seven inch. Oh, sure. And, um, like, and so, because it wasn't on that record right right you're like i gotta get a little more yeah so like anyway so and then from that it was like okay that got me into better reggae it got me into um better punk sure and um or like you know punk that that i gravitated towards it eventually like stuff that i liked it pushed me down the road yeah um but yeah bad brains was my my interest well and it's and i just like that because it's such a distillation of the you know both of your diverging tastes where right, it was just like, right. oh yeah, like here's like the perfect amalgamation. Of this. Right, it's right, like, right. Oh wow, like I didn't, you know, and it, I mean, still to this day, it's not like very many bands exist, but in both of those worlds. <laughs> right, right. So right. it's it's just perfect that it kind of hits you on that that very uh, note. The um, and so as you started to you know kind of find your identity and obviously be like you know school is not for me. Like was there? Uh, I mean, and music had consumed you at that point, and you started. Yeah. Had you? Because I'm not sure of the timeline in regards to, you know, Death Wish Kids and Area 51. Like, had you already started playing in high school with that sort of stuff or? I was in, so I was in high school. My friend Derek, who I mentioned. Yes. He had a friend named Chris Eckley who was in a band called Ricky Ticky Tavi. Oh, okay. And they were, um, they would play with like Undertow and like bands like that. Like they were a part of that scene Mm -hmm. and their bass player quit. And so I started playing bass with them. I don't know how um but right. you just picked I know it up. how to play guitar like r- on a very rudimentary level okay and i probably kind of lied but like the um yeah anyway so i started playing bass with them and that was my first band and then um andrea zolo who was in um death wish kids in area 51 and then went on to be in pretty girls make graves mm-hmm. um she joined that band when our singer quit and then we changed our name okay and our big claim to fame was that we were on a yo-yo compilation um one of the olympia comps which was a big deal i mean we were on with like bands like link and beck and like you know all the it was totally yeah you're like we snuck in we snuck in here (laughs) this is not right (laughs) um but that was kind of like the first time that we had ever recorded anything that we, you know, and um, after that, that band broke up and Andrea and Spencer and I were just like, I want, like, we want to be in a, this isn't over an actual punk band, like, like a, just in, in your face, fucked up punk band, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's when those bands started. Right. Right. And so was it pretty much kind of from the moment that you uh, started to play shit, like you immediately were like, okay, this is all I can focus on? Yeah, okay. probably. Yeah, yeah. And and I was really lucky just because there were so many people around that were actually doing it. And, right. and like it wasn't the kind of thing that where you – and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to leave the suburban area because like there you talked about doing it. But the kids that actually moved out were like, no, we got to – we're executing. We're here it. for a reason, you know. Right. So, like, where's the nearest punk house? Because we're moving in there as quickly as possible. Right. And then, like, um, and then, yeah, and then, like, we just have to make bands. And then also Isaac from Modest Mouse showed up around that exact time. Mm-hmm. And he was just making this totally 
bizarre music right. um, on an unplugged electric guitar with like a helmet on and into like <laughs> it's essentially it, performance art yeah, yeah. It, it was right. and it was annoying it was a really annoying performance art <laughs> right. he got I mean he basically got kicked out of a house for just being annoying um, <laughs> people were like, like get out of here dude <laughs> which was great for him because he left that house, went back to Issaquah, uh, which is where the band is from, mm-hmm. and holed up in his parents' shed. They live in like a trailer on a, this beautiful like plot of land out by the mountains, and then they built this really nice shed that he lived in. Um, and uh, he wrote all of the early, early Modest, Modest Mouse songs that were like I remember when he. I hadn't seen him in like months and he played me this tape he had made. And I was like, Oh my God, like you just changed into a person that makes music. Like right. not, not just like goofy, like yeah, I'm yeah. just, but like these beautiful songs that, and lyrics that no one else could really write. And I was like, it was pretty incredible. Yeah. Anyways, he showed up around that time and we became friends and he, he was into all of that. Like he had gone to DC and like stayed at positive force and all this stuff. Oh, amazing. Yeah. It was, that's how we became friends. I mean, when right. he told me he'd stayed there, I was like, are you kidding me? Like you're rad. Like, yeah. Who's this guy? <laughs> well, I, and I think that's what, <laughs> when you, when you trace it back to like, basically, you know, most of the bands, I don't care what genre, as long as it existed sort of in the independent space, Yes, you can almost always trace it back to like either punk or hardcore or like maybe metal you know right, right, like right, right. those are all the common roots where it's just like oh yeah of course i like seven seconds or of course i like this right. that led me to this thing that i am doing now and i think that's where you can always kind of tell too like if it was say like say you meet a band later and that band and your band seem kind of different you can always kind of feel it if they didn't come from like yeah. a punk scene absolutely background. like there's just something like oh we're just there's something missing here from in the way that we're interacting and mm-hmm. no judgment, but like, no, I just can just different. tell it's different. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Totally. yeah. It, 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 yeah. If you're cut from the same cloth, you can immediately just be like, oh yeah, within, within 10 minutes, you're already figuring out like, oh yeah, like we're obviously gonna be friends forever. Right. right. It's fine. Like, totally. I won't see you in a couple of years yeah. and I'll be like, it's fine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, you know, Isaac was like that. So at the same time he, you know, when he started um, really, really doing Modest Mouse as a, as a actual band mm-hmm. i had joined that band as well so i was like in death wish kids and modest mouse at the same time right and um <clears throat> and that was weird but also really fun and it didn't matter yeah it didn't whatever. matter yeah because everything was was uh, you know uh pseudo serious where it was like oh yeah we're serious about the music and playing shows and stuff like that yeah. but it's like you know what i guess this this isn't what i'm gonna be doing in 10 years or whatever well, like there was no i mean yeah that is no. what you're gonna be doing <laughs> that is what you're gonna be doing but you're like yeah there's no like you know commercial like it's not well, like we're gonna break through or what yeah and we didn't think that we would be doing it in 10 years for sure and <laughs> also that was and i i'm always really kind of like probably self-conscious about this but I remember kids hang or like people hanging out that were like 29, 30, you know, but like punks, yeah, you know, like fucking lifers, moss icon, like, you know, butt patches and like (laughs) just like whatever. And it was like they'd be at parties with a bunch of 19 year old kids and I'd be like, "Hmm, Hmm. I don't want to be that. That I won't be. That I won't be. I will go to like I will go to a house party, stand in the back not really hang out, but I want to see this band. So I'm going to, and that's the only place they're playing. Like, then I'll kind of go and then I'll get out of there. Totally. I'm going to like hang out and party with the kids. No, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like that's insane. And that's <laughs> weird. And I don't want to do that. Right. But I was, remember being really conscious of that. So yeah, at that point, the idea of like growing old and like being a part of like the music scene didn't seem feasible to me. Like, yeah. it didn't, you know, 
like I would still believe in the same things I believed in, but the idea of just hanging around as what seemed like very old to me. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I have a super fun podcast. I'm going to tell you about a friend of mine is working on it. And, uh, you know, not everything needs to be centered around, uh, you know, like the punk and hardcore scene. This podcast does not center around that, but it is something that you will probably enjoy. James Kennedy. He is a, uh, a DJ music producer. And if you are a reality TV head, Vanderpump rules, I've watched a few episodes. It's fun. Uh, but he has a podcast called it's not about the podcast with James Kennedy. And basically he does this super, super fun idea where, you know, he has some guests on, uh, I'm going to name some names that frankly, I don't know who they are, but that does not mean anything because this is not my world that I travel in, but he's had people like, you know, the blame heartthrob black Elvis and legendary house DJ, DJ Irene. But what he does with his guests is that sometimes he, uh, you know, makes music live and they kind of collaborate on stuff. I've listened to a few episodes and I'm like, Hey man, for someone who has no talent within this particular genre of music, I look at this and I'm like, it's really cool. And then plus he has, you know, really in-depth interviews, not too dissimilar to what we do here. Um, he also has some freestyle battles, which I've heard one or two of those. And those are really, really funny because again, that's a talent that I don't have. Uh, not very many of my friends do. So it's interesting to kind of watch that play out in real time. And then he also, he loves space and he likes to have space trivia to test guest knowledge of space and aliens. It's super fun. That that's the whole point of this podcast. It's fun, but do not miss a single episode. Subscribe to it's not about the podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple podcasts, Himalaya, which is a new podcast player or basically anywhere you listen to podcasts. All right. It's not about the podcast. It's super fun. Check it out. It, it also struck me too that, you know, as the, um, cause you know, I'm not going to go, uh, cro- like chronological order in regards to all the bands that you played in and be like, Oh yeah, tell me about, you know, uh, all the records that you did. So I'm going to kind of jump around here, but you know, as the, um, you know, as the business started to become more of a focus with, you know, yeah. I mean, modest mouse, mercy devils, like all of these things, like, you know, getting signed to, you know, sub pop and putting out a lot of records. Um, you strike me as a person that, uh, didn't really care about that. Like you were, were you uh, ever, I mean, you were involved in business decisions as most bands are where that everybody kind of collectively talks about it, but did you care for that side of the business at all? No. Yeah. No, I hated it. Okay. I'm still, I'm still bad about it. I mean, we're we're sitting here in, in a a business that I own with my partner. Right. Um, and I'm still, uh, I still would rather just do the creative, the work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I was terrible about that. Always terrible about it. I mean, I think towards the latter part of Modest Mouse, when I realized I was leaving, mm-hmm. um, I really, that's when I started learning a little bit more about it because I had to figure out how to separate myself financially from the band. And there were sure. there were some complications that uh, to deal with with that. And um, I learned a lot in that time period. It was the first time I had my own lawyer and had, you know, um, really dug into that at all right um i'm still yeah is it is it is it one of those things where it's just because the because you know there are people where it's like everybody kind of plays the role in the band and like you know usually it kind of weirdly defaults to like the lead singer being the one that books the shows or whatever and then like handling the merch money and stuff like that um not for us (laughs) yeah so i mean who for mercy devils who is who's the business person okay that's 100 like not even close 100 percent. like well also Cody is now that person because he and uh, Jared are in a band called Big Business that tours relentlessly and they do everything themselves. And right. it's just like, you know, so they he by default kind of learned how to exist as a band. Do that. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so he's actually really good at it now, too. But Derek from day one has been like, 
I will tour manage this band if we don't. I mean, we always had um, our friend Gabe who would tour yep. with us and stuff. Um, but, you know, Derek knew, got it right away. Totally. He got the business side and everything about it right away. Right, yeah. And it was yeah. like, yeah, as long as we have that, like, we're, we're cool. Like, you, yeah. can, you can ask us questions and we'll say, like, oh, that's a cool show to play, sure. Like, right, right. But everything else we trust you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it was good. I mean, it's great. It's great to have someone that's, like, savvy about that yeah. in the band. Um, uh, because, again, there were at least three of us at all times that, that weren't. That weren't, right. Yeah. right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, as you were kind of uh, picking through the uh, the idea of like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to get my you know high school degree and do all this sort of stuff. Did you – was there ever any – other vision you had in regards to like oh like here's what i'm gonna do as like a career like here's what you know i really like math or whatever you know like there i was thinking about going to south sound south sound community college because i didn't have the grades to get into evergreen and those were the two schools that were in olympia sure and so if i was going to move somewhere it would have been olympia out of high school right um and uh I was so I thought about that. That's about as far as I got. <laughs> right. And so instead, what I did is I I had worked in restaurants as as a uh, high school kid. So oh sure. Um, I just continued doing that and eventually became a bartender. And that's one of the ways that a lot of bands in Seattle, um, kind of that kind of survived around the same scene or group of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of bands survived by working at a place called the Cha Cha Lounge. Which, oh yeah. Um, when it opened, uh, the owner hired basically all the kids that had worked at his restaurant, um, and they were all punk kids or, or you know, they punk were, adjacent. They, right yeah, <laughs> you know, they were basically all punk kids. So um, we and he let us kind of go. He do, he would always say like, I don't want to hear, I don't want to get a phone call about who needs to cover what shift. Like this is on you. You guys figure it out. Everyone needs. To, I need two bartenders every night. You're you are responsible for dealing with all of this. And he le- he basically left. I mean, he would check in to make sure things were right. Of course, but we took the responsibility to make sure that that place, which was really busy, um, was always staffed properly. Was always like running properly. Um, and I think I don't want to speak for all the bartenders that work there, but I <laughs> would say that there was a certain amount of pride around it. That, I that would people, say so. Yeah. yeah, people cared a lot about making sure because they also knew that you know, like Sam Jane from Love Is Laughter and Link um, worked there, and so he was always going on tour. Ben Bridwell from Band of Horses worked there. He was always yeah. he was bad. He was bad. He, he, he did would not... hang around waiting for shifts, even though he was oh, way down the line. Right, and um, it would annoy the crap out of everyone. <laughs> yeah, you're like, dude, you didn't put so, in the time. He's so charming, and it's like obnoxious because <laughs> he's like super handsome and charming, and then he would just sit around charming whatever bartender out of their shift, basically, and like. Um, but whatever. Anyways, there were a lot of bands, and and so we we allowed each other the space to go on tour by covering and everything else. Yeah, that's incredible. Because I mean that. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, it sounds like obvi- like a communal space in this yeah. in the way that it's like, oh yeah, we, you know, we're putting on shows together, and it's like, oh yeah, you got to bring the PA, yeah, and you got to make sure that this thing is covered, and like that's just amazing that you were given that latitude. It's totally amazing, and I think that's one of the reasons why we took pride in it. And we yeah. loved our, uh, we loved the owner. I mean, he was great to us in a million ways, and um, we wanted the business to do well, and we wanted. You know, uh, we wanted to run properly, and we didn't want it to go away. Right? So. Yeah. You feel, when you feel like you trip into something that is uh, exciting and vibrant, and you're like, yeah. "Yeah, we don't want this to go away." So, like, we got to protect this in yeah, exactly. whatever way we can. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it was also the way that I survived. Well, murders. I can't. I can never say her name. Right. Um, while that band went on tour, because we weren't making, we only made money 
to sustain the band. <laughs> Barely. Mm-hmm. I mean, we would we were basically, yeah, sustaining the band. I think is right. It's much. not like you would come. Ho- it's not like you would come home being like, all right, cool. We can you know we can pocket you know twenty five hundred dollars a piece. You'd no. be like, yeah, maybe here's like a couple hundred bucks, but like clearly you're going to land. Yeah. and go right back into your shifts. It was only our last two tours where we made any money, and it was the, on the last tour that we did where we had kind of announced that we were breaking up. Um, we made, I think we made each like three grand or something. And really, like, doing the whole time. Tu- Interesting. And that was a a big deal. Yeah. Like it was such – that was like, you know, I mean it was literally like getting like a trust fund or something. Right. You're like, I do not know what to do with $3,000 that I made from this band. uh, Yeah, exactly. Right. That's exactly how we felt or at least how I felt, you know. But like, yes, I very much felt that way. That's interesting. I mean because, you know, many people would would look at the trajectory of the band and and see the sort of logical steps of the – you know, because I mean In Name and Blood was definitely a record that, you know – "Quote unquote broke through," not to the extent of where it's like obviously you can play at radio and stuff like that, but yeah. you guys could play you know eight hundred to twelve hundred cap venues and like do reasonably well in most places. Yeah. Maybe I'm just I'm so myopic because I'm thinking about what I witnessed in Southern California. Like, right, you guys always killed it down here. L.A. was a good city for us to play. It always was. So, yeah. Um, and it's not. I mean, for the most part, we were playing three hundred seat. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, and small and like. And that was great. You know, I mean, to us, it didn't like the idea of selling out a 300 cap venue was like a big deal. Yeah. 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 So like, you know, we were we were doing great. And then, yeah, occasionally in bigger cities, we could uh, play slightly bigger places. We played the Middle East on our last tour. It's the first time we ever played the Middle East. Right. Um, Things like that. So, but that was also that was that tour that we we made right, a that you, of money. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and did you, uh, you know, as you were kind of experiencing <laughs> these, um, you know. Uh, the 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 connective tissue of like okay you know we're gonna put out a seven inch we're gonna put out a full length right, and like as you right. start to have these little mile markers um when for you did it kind of become like oh wow like this is much bigger than obviously i ever anticipated this thing being i mean it doesn't have to be that crystalline moment of like you walking out on stage and being like oh wow we've made it like because that doesn't mean anything but where it just it, it kind of switched off to you where it was like wow this band is pretty important to some people yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I think I kind of, I don't know how much I fully realized that in, in Murder or City Devils. Like, I, I never, I don't know. I always thought yeah. it was, like, um, fluky or something. Like, I didn't, I never, <laughs> I never got, weight into got a feeling. Also, I, did, I, I definitely didn't realize the, the way people some people felt about that band until we got back together. Um, sure. So that was when I actually noticed that, that there was some people out there who still cared, which was weird enough and cared a lot. <laughs> right. Um, but with Modest Mouse, I definitely, there was, uh, mo- there were moments of like, oh my God, what's happening? This is the weirdest thing. Because they were already a big band when I rejoined. After yeah. Mercy Devils broke up, so I, re- I rejoined Modest Mouse. And um, they, they had already become a big band. Totally. By big, that was like 1,000 to 2,000 seaters um, making a weird amount of money because they had the best record deals ever on up. And um, selling like, you know, 200, 300,000 copies of their records, they were big. Yeah, absolutely. But when um, uh, Good News uh, came out, that was a different thing. And I think, you know, it was just... Yeah, you push into the... I mean, yeah, it's like once you break into the... You know, mainstream radio world where it's like you know your songs are played in malls across the country where it's just like yeah 
whoa, uh, okay. Like, I don't know. I I don't know how to like absorb that coming from what your experience is. I remember. So we used to, um, uh, we used to end almost always our modest mouse tours in the Midwest or or on the East coast. For some reason we would like never end on the West coast. (laughs) And so we would, um, the, my guitar tech and I would drive the equipment truck back. Okay. Um, for a little money. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we can make a little extra cash, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, so we'd like race home in our equipment truck. So um, I remember one night driving like across, I don't even know, like Wyoming or something, somewhere, just somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And yep. we we're like trying to get a station in on the radio. And like through this scratchy little station, we heard Float On come on. And it was like, <laughs> Oh my like, god. What the hell is this? This is insane. And so, yeah, and there were a few moments like that, you know, um but that's to me that's when I was like, oh my god, like this is a different type of thing than mm-hmm. what I've ever done before. Right, you know? right. So, and I presume because of that you were also thrust into completely weird and awkward press situations like you know just like okay yeah you're gonna play the back of this restaurant because like you know these are the radio winners or whatever do you have any that stick out to you that are just like and not even so much like oh it's stupid i did this but more so from the perspective of like yo this is so weird yeah you know what modest mouse didn't do that as much as a lot of bands would and i think part of it was because isaac was just like yeah no not gonna do this not doing like he was pretty hardline about what he would and would not do Mm-hmm. And it kind of had a, um, well, I mean, an it, animosity towards press. Absolutely. You know? That was and definitely a, a thing yeah, that existed. For sure. And so I, I think that, like, um, you know, he he tried to avoid that stuff. We were getting our pictures taken, like, nonstop, which drove, drove me not, I hate, I literally hate having my picture taken so much. So the idea of that was, like, starting to actually, like, right, I, I got to stop this. Yeah. But yeah, we didn't. Thankfully, we didn't have to do a lot of that. The next band I was in, we were always doing stuff like Cold that. Cold Rockets. Yeah, yeah, right. And it was like not even, you know, it's kind of like to half sell a single, you know, like absolutely, but just like some transactional relationship, yes, right? Just constantly, and like, um, which was fine. And actually, it built up a lot of goodwill with the radio stations, so that when we came out with um, a song, uh, like on our the second record I did with them, mm-hmm. um, which did well on alternative radio the radio station were like we've been rooting for you guys and part of that is because like nathan and and, um, matt the bass player would always show up to every one of the like acoustic jam things totally would always play every weird show for every weird thing any opportunity yeah, yeah yeah and you know i mean i look back on it and it's like okay yeah i mean we all knew what we were doing and it wasn't mm-hmm. super fun but at that point yeah it actually did help us yeah it was weird normally those things yeah very helpful yeah but it's like there is that notion of like oh yes like we're all part we're all playing this game together right but when you do you know out of the whatever 20 opportunities that you pursue like two of them end up being like oh you actually wanted us to be here and do this you know like as opposed to like this is part of your job right and so those are the ones that you start to see like you said that well they're rooting for you and Yeah. yeah yeah um the uh what was it what has been your relationship with with touring because clearly you've done it on every level imaginable from, you know, playing in front of, you know, negative four people to, you know, playing in front of thousands of people. Yeah. Um, and those are two completely different experiences. Did you always, I guess, like being on the road? Did you like that experience? No. Okay. Um, no. So it was always very uh, uh, 
Uh, I mean, I kind of look at it like when I was a kid, when prior to being like a prior to emergency devils breaking up or even a couple of years into that band, really, mm-hmm. um, I did. I just wanted to be on. The, it was the only thing I ever wanted to do. It, I was so exciting that I got to do it. Yep. Um, and and I just was thrilled. Um, then that started to kind of. So I started to feel the grind because we toured a lot, constantly, you know? right? And so um, you, I, the, you know, so three or four years in, it's you start kind of like the grind of it starts to wear you down a little bit, but mm-hmm. it's fine. You're still young and you're going. Um, it was for me when Modest Mouse went from uh, vans to buses was when I just no longer wanted to tour at all. Yeah, like I just didn't. I hated buses. I've always hated buses. Um, I was talking about this with someone the other night, actually, like there was a point in my life where I loved to drive. So I would just drive and I'd stare out a window for eight hours a day. And, um, and it was really freeing and I didn't do anything. I listened to music, you know, and I talked to a friend in the front seat and I just watched America pass me by. And then as soon as that was taken away and it was just like, I went to sleep outside of a club and I woke up outside of a club and I just don't, that's not what I wanted. Like what I wanted was to like experience the feeling of freedom that you get from just going, going. forward totally, and seeing what's around you. Right. And, um, and so that, that marked a, a very distinct point for me where it was like, no, the I page mean, had been flipped, right? Yeah, I, I don't, I hate this. And then obviously when my daughter was <clears> born, that was, that was difficult to tour. Um, or it became difficult to tour, but where it really became difficult to tour was when she turned a, around three and my wife and I, um, my wife at the time and I mm-hmm. separated and then divorced. Um, and I realized you know, that I kind of knew, but I realized like I have to build a home for my child now, you mm-hmm. know, like I'm, I'm moving out and like, I'm always going you know, like I've had, I've always had split custody with, with, and we have a great relationship, her mom and I, um, but, but yeah, I realized like the most important thing in the entire world is the home that I create for my daughter and I and the relationship that we have, which has now changed because of our, you know, our family kind of breaking up. Of course. So um, that was, I just couldn't focus really on yeah, a lot. The transient yeah. lifestyle. So I toured for a couple months after that, but not, not much longer. And, um, and then it was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so. and, and it's funny, too, because it's like that, you know, most people could look at your 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 trajectory and playing in bands and then, you know, recording bands and like all of – to me, obviously, because I, I know the, the the players that are involved, it's like, oh, yeah, all, all your moves make sense, you know. But like, you know, I'm sure a kid like being like, oh, dude, how do you get into like, you know, producing and like playing in bands, like yeah. looking for advice? I'm sure you're just like, dude, like don't even remotely look at my roadmap because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> I mean, so I like I was always like, so you know how I was saying it was like – Derek was the one that was like the business savvy one yep. in that band. And, and, you know, there's always that personality type, like you were saying. Um, and I think there's always like the studio nerd of in the course, band, right, right. you know, and you might have a few, but there's one that's like a real yeah. studio nerd. Totally. Like, and that was me. And I was, so I was the one that was more involved with setting up the recordings and finding the, figuring all that. Everyone was involved, but I it was, I, you were extremely passionate. I was extremely passionate about it. <laughs> 
Um, and so I was already, and I had some friends that were producers, a guy named Phil Eck from Seattle and like yep. just people who were really good at what they did and producers and, and engineers, I should say, because that's the world that I came up in as producers who knew how to engineer. Totally. Yeah. People, yeah. It's, it's not just like the, 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 the weird old school music industry role of just like, oh yeah, here's an engineer. He knows how to press buttons and right. like, I'm the producer. Yeah. And it's like, well, you can't you do both. Like, right. <laughs> And there are a lot of people, I think, either because they don't want to engineer anymore or whatever. Um, I get it. And whatever makes a great record. Mm -hmm. But that's the world that I came up in was the hybrid. And it's the same now. You know, it's like it's um, in a world where everyone is confined to their homes. Society begins its largest bin watch to date in the hallowed library of Hulu or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And, and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I we we produce podcasts, so we we do the everything basically. Yes. Yeah, from start and to we finish. all know how to like engineer, and we all know how to you know to to run a session and that sort of thing. And it, and so that's that's the world that we all came from here, and then that was the world that I also came from with music. So I left Modest Mouse when I was thirty one or something. Yep, and um, I was like, okay, well, maybe I should start. Uh, maybe I should. Uh, own a restaurant because I because that was your experience. experience yeah and so I hooked up with this guy and um, our thirty um, uh, table or not uh, like thirty cap uh, uh, Southern Italian cafe turned into like a bunch of money from doctors who were putting in like millions of dollars into this giant Italian restaurant that I was going to be the general manager of oh. and it was like huh uh-uh, no like I can't do that I don't know how to do that so that just all. it just like exploded like it much was, quicker than you the person I was with was really good at securing capital so <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> that happened in a way that freaked me out like sure. and so I was like no okay not doing that <laughs> and um finally I was like you know what I'm going to go to audio school it's what I've wanted to do and I found the school I wanted to go to and I moved there. It was in outside of Phoenix, and um, I lived there for a year. And I did that, and came back to Seattle. Um, but when I came back, it was like two thousand seven. Yeah, yeah. And studio work was drying. Yeah, up. music industry changed a little bit. It did. It had changed quite a bit, and yeah. it hadn't just changed in that year. But obviously, oh, those couple of years between two thousand six and two thousand eight were a big deal. Yeah. Um, and uh, basically, I'm competing with like Phil, who's mm-hmm. who's like a, a world famous record producer and is one of my favorite producers. And I can't, do, you know, there's no way. So I that's I started working at a um, a uh, HIV AIDS um, clinic for mm-hmm. a while. And then um, my friend Gabe 
brought me on tour to do sound and was like, look, you're not doing anything. And I was like, I never really thought about live sound, but I guess I'll do it because sure. I need a job. Try it out. Yeah. And so I, my first job was doing monitors for MIA, yep. which was amazing unbelievable yeah Yeah. (laughs) it was really getting thrown into the fire you know like learn everything yes so that was incredible um and then and then i started doing um then i started doing front of house for cold war kids and that's how i met them and sure and that and then i moved here and their guitar player quit and they needed a producer for their record so they asked me to do both right right yeah yeah and then yeah you were able to piece it together from that perspective yeah um the you know the the idea of uh you know kind of what you were talking about where uh the the podcast world and the you know DIY you know punk and hardcore scene like it it's like i said it's so it it could, every day it impresses me where it's just like oh wow the the connective tissues are there cuz podcasts are the same thing where it's just like oh yeah you just start up in your garage and like just plug a mic in right, and like figure right, it out right. and then like eventually like if the idea is cool enough like people will start to like come to it absolutely and so how did you, uh, I guess, kind of get attracted to that, to this world that, you know, you ostensibly exist in now? Well, so I always loved podcasts um, from pretty early on. And I, you know, but and the radio, you know, I loved public radio and podcasts. Yep. And they helped me get through so many tours. And yeah, just, like, so many long drives. Right, right. Absolutely. So um, like you, I, I wanted to do an interview based show which i never ended up doing but i this i had this dream of doing a show um and uh it was like my pipe dream kind of so i was when i left cold War kids i was doing like independent producing and production which basically means you just do or sorry in co-writing which basically means you sit in a room with someone that's like mildly famous struggling and with songs try and like get yeah, hits or it's, something it's, yeah it's that's a rough soul crushing and it's and there are like a million people in la doing it right now as we speak and yep. it, it was i just i knew this is not happening so i was gonna have to do something else um and right at that moment um this my friend sent me a um an or a uh uh, the notice for that Bullseye, which is a public radio program produced by, in LA um, by a company called Maximum Fun, were looking for a producer. And the first thing that I noticed, she knew that I was just super into radio and podcasts and stuff. Right. But this was still like a dream. I did not think that someone would let me into this world at all. Yeah. So um, the first thing I noticed is that there was nothing prohibitive about it, about the job uh, ad. You know, like I didn't. There was no college requirement. There was no right. There was no blockers for you. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, that's fine. So I, got, so I, I have tattoos on my try. hand. Dude. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> I can at least try. Like I can't. Well, like if 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 I walked in, they're like, well, you know, we asked you to have like a degree, and you don't have one. Right. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's a bummer. I should probably leave. But like the but I went in. I met Colin, who you know, yep. and um, he didn't want to hire me, but uh, the host Jesse did. So he overruled Colin, and they hired me, which I'll never let Colin forget. No. But um, rub it in. So uh, I got thrown into an absolute, like, boot camp for podcast production Mm -hmm. Um, from the moment I walked in the door. It was, okay, you're the only producer of what is like a a fresh air for young people type show. That's like the idea. Yep. They want that. So. You're going to be booking the show, which is a full-time job. Totally, yeah, yeah. <laughs> bring, bring us guests. Make sure, yeah. yeah. 
So then you're so once you book the guests, you're gonna get you're gonna schedule them, you're gonna get them in, you're gonna record them, you're gonna prep the host, you're going to although Jesse does most of his own prep, but but you do some of that. Then you're going to cut both of the interviews down. You're going to write the script. You're going to record the VO, cut the VO, assemble the show, mix the show, upload the show, yep. and uh, and score the show, and um, all of that every week. So you have your show to get out every single week, and then you have these ongoing things like booking and that. Totally sort of making sure you got enough. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a lot, and what I realized, so cut, you know, just cutting down to. Uh, hour-long interviews every week and oh and also producing a c-segment that was like yeah. as creative as you want to make it so um just those sort like this was a job where believe me i've seen many podcasts where there would be seven producers doing this show absolutely like, and they there wouldn't need to be but there would be for there sure. would be yeah they'd throw it yeah. so many people at oh it. my god it'd be insane it'd be insane and everyone would be rushing around trying to show everyone that they're actually working on something and nothing would be getting done it would be crazy but what i got was a real just hit the ground running like you're you're gonna have to figure this out like you just have to sure like you don't like npr needs their show and they need it at 59 seconds on the dot yeah and they need you to do all that like you're gonna have to figure it out and colin was so rad because he would help me when he saw that i was like really freaked out and struggling like i just have no idea what to do here um but for the most part he just let me sweat it out and um and and I learned a lot in a short amount of time. That's amazing. Yeah. And so that yeah, you got you got thrown into that. And then like did did you kind of did you see the parallels between that's like oh yeah like this is yeah for yeah, sure right? for sure. And when I really saw them um, was when so I had met uh, my partner Jane, who's were in business and were also like you know uh, romantically involved or whatever. sure. So um, we we met at a Max Fun. Uh, benefit or some donor dinner or something um and it was totally like a the last seat um available and i walk in late and we sit next to each other and start talking about our kids and radio and stuff and she had worked at this american life for 10 years uh-huh. um and was just and she is to this day i who i think is the most absolute most creative and talented person in this industry um so i feel very lucky to work with her um so we would hang out. We started dating. And so we were hanging out like, you know, just like on summer evenings on my back porch or whatever. And we'd kind of be thinking about what we felt like the world of podcasting, at least in L.A., kind of needed. And mm-hmm. we may or may not have been right, but we kind of settled on like we should make stuff. That's what we like to do. We like to make things. So yep. how are we going to do that? So. We found, we looked for a space and we found it. We put it together. You know, we didn't frame the studios out, but everything else we did do. And, um, you know, it, it felt a lot like starting a, a band. Where, totally. You know, that thing of like, we're makers. Like, we we do things. Like, if we want to do, if we want to be in a band, then we're going to figure out exactly all the steps you have to take to right. do Gotta that. Right. Got to put out a demo. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. and that's kind of how. That's where I definitely saw the parallels, and then um, there are other, there are more, obviously. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I definitely felt it then, where it was like, yes, like yeah. we're just going to do this. Yeah, we're not asking permission. Nope, not nope. at all. Yeah. Exactly. No, there's no That's gate- such a good way to say it. Like, yeah. we're not we're not asking permission. Like, we're just going to do it. 
There's no, yeah, there's no you gatekeepers. Know? Like, yeah. you know, like, yes, of course there's gatekeepers where it's just like, oh yeah, like the popularity of your show exists on like 7 million different factors. Yeah. But the fact that you can appeal to, you know, 300 people, you're just like, that's great. If, yeah. if I'm playing a 300 person show, that's unbelievable. Totally. <laughs> you know, and I think the thing for, we had to, we had to learn a lot and we are learning a lot and what, a, a, you know, a lot of where it is, Jane's far more business savvy than I am. Um, but I think we're both learning a lot in sure. that regard. And, um, that was the side of it that, that where we realized, like, okay, we have a lot to learn here, and that's going to take up more of our time than we originally thought. Right. Because we're a four-person operation here. So when we're doing a show like The Dream, you know, we're all hustling. We're working nights yeah. and weekends. Getting we're doing, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, what the big lesson, I think, for us is, like, oh, my God, we're going to be in meetings, like, you know, four hours a day. Right. And that's going to really cut into our ability to actually make, make the these thing. shows. And so that's why we're going to have to work nights and weekends and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, that so that's been that's been a, a eye-opening experience. I think. Totally. Well, it's, it's not like it, when anybody starts their creative pursuit, no matter what it is, that they're like, dude, you know what? I can't wait to be. I can't wait to be like a boss. Yeah, I can't exactly. wait. It's like, no, no, no yeah. one. Especially when you yeah. come from the world that we do, it's like, oh yeah, like yeah. I can't wait to like rule over people. No, but there is, it, there is, there's something about like if you're touring and you have like a small crew, yeah, and you need to get to like, there's something about working with a relatively small group of people in a situation where the only thing that matters is that you have to like get it. Done. done yeah like yeah. we would never make our employees like work until you know no, nine no. o'clock and there's some crazy <laughs> right but right. i just mean like the general attitude is that if we're going to do something we want to do it everyone's great. doing it together yeah, yeah and we're going to do it together and we're going to work really hard and yeah like, there there is a very similar feeling i think yeah yeah absolutely know? uh the last thing i want to have before i let you go is the uh so you know you are a father like you mentioned you only one child right mm-hmm. okay yeah oh there she is yeah uh so the you know I, I also have a seven year old son. Uh, well, oh, yeah, I know you don't have a son, but thank you. No, yes, yeah. congratulations. Yes, uh, yes, we we have, we have kept our chil- <laughs> seven children. Seven years ago, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Seven years ago, we were r- r- roughly experiencing the same thing. Do you have more than one kid? No, just one. Yeah, okay, keeping yeah. it keeping it at one. Yeah, 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 yeah. fair enough. I, that's how I feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the you know I, I often reflect on the uh, idea where it's like okay, here's this uh, you know here's us getting raised through this lens of you know, radical politics, um, all these things that are, you know, not only progressive, like you mentioned, but, uh, you know, contrary to most of the world at large. And then putting yourself in a very normal position of being a parent. And like, you know, how has your, uh, I mean, I'm sure in many respects, the, uh, your lens has grown wider in regards to, uh, either, you know, your empathy, your feelings, like, you know, once you have a child, it's like, you know, you cried everything or whatever. Yeah. But, um, you know, what have you noticed about just kind of the the idea of like, okay, I'm I'm raising my daughter through this lens of, you know, essentially just being, you know, a punk and hardcore kid. Um, yeah. I've, the big thing for me has been trying to still allow her to make her own choices. And we're, we're a ways away from that. Sure. So it's, you have like... It requires obviously patience because you have to like kind of white knuckle it and hope that this isn't the wrong decision that you shouldn't be. But like, for instance, being vegan, like I've been vegan since I was 16 years old. Yeah. And um, everyone asked me if I raised Maria vegan. I'm like, nope, I don't raise Maria anyway. When she's at my house, 
she generally eats vegan or close to it because sure. she likes eggs and cheese and stuff. Right. So um, because that's what we eat, you know, and I think that it's good for kids to eat what the family eats, you know, whatever. Absolutely, yeah. And when she's at her mom's um, or, or not necessarily at her mom's, but like at her family's or whatever, um, she'll have a hamburger or she'll have whatever. And I, to me, it's like, well, I don't want to politicize food for her right now. Sure. She can – she will – I know that she will one day be introduced to factory farming and yep. some of those concepts that are um, why I originally became vegan. So, uh, but I don't want to politicize it right now. I want her to uh, actually. I want to foster a love for food and a healthy love for food. In sure, her, a relationship. Especially, yeah, especially because mm-hmm. she's a girl. Because she's a girl, and I don't want her growing up feeling self conscious about food in any way. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't. I can't stop that from happening, but I don't want to make it worse or at least want to try not to make it worse. So that and then there, the other thing with that and kind of with all of this is like I got to find that. And just like getting into music, playing guitar, but but not just being the person that plays guitar, being the person that like realizes that playing guitar – means that I get to make songs, which means I get to be in a band, which means I get to go on, you know, and tell yeah. me to do that. Like I fought for those things and it was the funnest fight in the entire world. I mean, it was like the best thing ever was that I got, I chose that. Yeah. You it found was that. Mine. It was, mm-hmm. it was independence. Independence was wrapped up in it. And I want her to have those moments of discovery Whatever they are for her. Yep. You know, and whether it's political, although it's great to be a parent at a point where, like now, where you can talk, uh, where your child comes home and, and starts talking about how boys and girls are separating on the playground and then you can discuss gender exactly. and the fluidity of it and transgender and you can actually just talk to them in a straightforward way about it and then they can go to school and... And instead of it being like, it's actually reinforced, you know, Absolutely. It's, it's like she, there are gay parents, there are, you know, so these, these ideas are reinforced. And I think that that makes me feel very lucky as a parent right now. There are plenty of things that make me feel very unlucky. Yeah, but, of course. Um, <laughs> right, right. But uh, those things, politically speaking, like, um, yes, those things we will, those are, we'll teach those. And yeah, of those course, are right, right. But, the core values, yeah, right? But um, but those are treat other people the way you want to be treated, and basic totally. kindness and respect. You know, I mean, that's yeah. simple stuff. So, like, um, anyways, the the decisions, you know, and when it comes to music, when it comes to like the way she eats, like I said, like different things like that. What she decides she wants to be into, she is into. I want her to have those genuine moments of discovery mm-hmm. that not only did I have, but that inspired my entire life, some of which was planned, some of which was totally random because I still got to discover new things in my 30s. Of course. You know? Yeah, and yeah. So no, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really beautiful train of thought just because the idea is that, like, I think that, um, you know, people of a certain, certain generation, whatever you call it, you know, 30s up to, you know, late 50s, where it's like yeah. when you've been exposed to counterculture in many different respects, you realize that, that uh, it is your, like, once you are in that position of being a parent, you're just like, 
it's your job to show your kid just a bunch of stuff. Like, yeah. Do you yeah, sh- yeah. And like, and I don't th- realistically, like, I know that like my parents didn't view it from that perspective. Like I'm 38 years old, but it's like, my parents weren't like, you know, doing all the stuff that I do. And it's not like, oh, run around to soccer games and like, you know, keep the right, kids busy. Right. It's just like, oh yeah, like, you know, go, go to this thing, like go to right. a basketball game, go to just get exposed to all this stuff. And then you'll never find out until you actually see the reaction from your kid. We're just Absolutely. like, oh, they're into that. Totally. I mean, and it, and those moments of discovery that you allow them to have are also like the most rewarding, totally. like, <laughs> totally. in, like heart, heartbreakingly wonderful moments as right. a parent. Um, we were doing, uh, I'm, so I'm working on a podcast, uh, that's part of a big multimedia, um, I don't even know what you would sure, call per, it. Per, uh, a large scale project. A large scale multimedia project, um, talking about poverty. Um, and the podcast has to do with poverty and education, okay. specifically poverty and writing. Okay. And we were interviewing a professor at UCLA. Uh, the other day, P- Pedro Nogueiro. Oh, sure. Um, awesome. Yes. You, do you know him? I do, I, I've heard his name. Yes. That's yes. so awesome. He's a, He was unbelievable. That's and so cool. I could just sit and listen to him forever. Um, <laughs> he said this thing that as a parent, I it made, I don't know, it really hit me. But uh-huh. he was like, you know, when I was a kid, my dad didn't, we grew up in Brooklyn. It wasn't gentrified. My dad didn't, you know, he was a working class guy. He didn't have a lot of money. I'm paraphrasing here. Sure. Um, and, uh, but he was very, he wasn't very well educated, but he was very well read. And one of the things that he would do and him and my mom would do is on Saturdays after we were done with our chores, they would say, okay, go to the library. And we would have to spend at least a couple hours every Saturday at the library, um, with this librarian learning about new books, all the same, but they forced us to do this, you know, and he was like, it was the greatest thing ever. I know I, I, there are different kids that are going to react to that differently. Of course. But I love that about that generation. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of saying like, I don't, I don't care if they want to go. Yeah. This you is just like, go. Yeah, yeah. You, you got to like, broaden your horizons. Yeah, yeah. Go. And like, you know, we'll know pretty fast if they really hate it, you right. know, but like, this, but sometimes you have to. I don't know if this is your experience. Do you, I mean, we have kids the same age, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes you do have to like push a little bit. And it's oh, all absolutely. About finding that balance. Totally, you know? totally. It's not like, and you know, you you see this with other parents where it's just like they're trying to, uh, you know, relitigate or relive their own childhood. So it's just right. like they're trying to make the child in the you know a smaller image of themselves. Right. But you know, on the flip side, on the positive side, is the fact that it's like, yeah, of course, like you know, I you don't feel like doing karate today. I understand that. Right. But like, this is really good for you. And right. Like you you. You enjoy it once you were doing it, right. but just the concept of like getting there and like doing all this, exactly. it's like, oh yeah. But it's like, yeah, you, you have to, um, yeah, your responsibility is just like, oh yeah, I'm going to show you a bunch of stuff. Maybe some of this will stick. Maybe some of this won't. I don't, right. I, 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 I'm not sitting here being like, you know what I really want you to be into right now? I really want you to be, uh, you know, super into chain of strength when you're eight right, years old. Right, right, no, right. No, that's yeah. a horrible idea. <laughs> that isn't a good idea. No, it's not a good idea at all. <laughs> I'll introduce you. Yeah. Yeah. No, anyways. Right, right, right. But do you, uh, do you, are you vegan still or I am. You, yeah. I am. Yeah. Do yeah. you raise your kids vegan? Raising kids vegetarian. Okay. And he, yeah. uh, and so our, our concept was that uh, once he reaches an age where he is like, if he's, you know, he's like, I, I, gosh, I can't, I, I want to have a hamburger. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like yeah. once he is able to make so that choice. Very similar. It's very yes. similar. But yeah. the, 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 the main connective thing that I wanted to do is like not, again, not uh, agree with you as far as the politicization of, you yeah. know, the, that whole movement. 
but just the notion of like, you know, animals are food. Right. Like right. that make that connective tissue. Cause like, yeah. Did you see him start? So uh, like, I'm watching Maria starting just now to discover that. Like yeah. the idea of like, Oh, wait a second. Uh, right. That, that thing, cow that, is the burger. Yeah. yeah. We, she started getting into this television show. We don't watch a lot of TV, but there's a few shows that, uh, that I love too. Sure. And there's a show called Master Chef Junior. Oh, yeah. I'm familiar. And right. I think they're really good with the kids on that they show. Are, they I are. think they're awesome. Yeah. And yeah. like, um, I love the show. I find it like totally engaging and I love those types of food shows. And she loves it, but she's starting t- to connect certain things about food that she otherwise Maybe wouldn't. Yeah. She's always there when I'm cooking and stuff, but she doesn't, she wouldn't see like, they had like half brains on there or something the other right. day. Um, it was like, you know, it was a big challenge to try and figure out how to cook with them. And she was just like, oh my God. Like, and she made the connection. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's interesting to see him actually kind of make that connection. Yeah. Cause it's like, at the end of the day, it's like, I, you know, I don't care what a person decides to arrive to, whether yeah. it's like, oh, you know, they're totally vegan, vegetarian, whatever. Yeah. Like that's each person's choice. But if you've never even put thought into the concept right. of where it comes from, right. that's when it's like you're doing yourself a disservice. Right. Well, it's also so different from when we were kids. Totally. I mean, I know I'm older than you, but like... But still, yeah. But, you know, it's just the uh, the options for how we get meat and dairy yeah. are totally different Completely. Now. And so, you know, that's something I will absolutely teach her, mm-hmm. is, you know, but but yeah, it's, it's very different. But yeah. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> well, dude... I really, really appreciate you hanging out. This honestly yeah, has been super fun. Yeah, I was really fun. fun. Yeah, yeah. thank you. <laughs> it's my pleasure, Thanks man. for coming. Of course, dude. Okay, that was Dan Gallucci. We could have talked for probably like no shortage of three hours or so, but, uh, you know, he had a meeting and he had to go and I, but I could tell it was just that nice, that nice feeling when you're hanging out with a person and you're like, no, I, I can keep going. Yeah, yeah, this is good. I'm into it. <laughs> so thank you very much, Jan. And also thank you to my coworker, Jenny Radlett Mast, who hooked this interview up. I know she's not going to listen to it, but still, well, maybe she will. So thanks, Jenny. <laughs> So what do we got for next week? We have a, uh, this is a younger person. So I want to make sure I'm reflecting all sort of eras of the Seattle punk and hardcore scene. Uh, Ian Shelton, he plays in a band called regional justice center. And he also plays in a band called Seattle's new gods. It was a awesome chat because, uh, he got into the whole, you know, punk and hardcore scene up there in Seattle, kind of like after the, you know, craziness of the early two thousands, you know, with bands like champion and how that whole scene was exploding up there in Seattle. So it was very interesting and I loved the chat and his band is really, really good. So that's what we got next week. And until then, please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw podcast network, jabberjawmedia.com. Hi, I'm Esther Dean. I've made my life by writing songs like Fireworks by Katy Perry, Super Bass by Nicki Minaj, What's My Name by Rihanna, just to name a few. And now I'm having an absolute blast sharing some of the knowledge that I've learned with upcoming songwriters on Songland on NBC. I'm excited to welcome you to a brand new season of Songland and Songland's podcast, giving you new insight into the magical art of songwriting as told by some of the best in the business and also the pioneers and the up-and-comers who will be shaping the hits you'll be listening to for years. We have an amazing roster of talent this season. I promise you, you don't want to miss one single episode. 
Don't miss Songland, Monday nights at 10, 9 central. And join us here on Songland's podcast, available every week after the show on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. 